Uh, it's good to be here with you this afternoon. Hope you're doing well. Uh, it's great to be uh, at church together. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, let me say, if you are here, if you're a guest, uh, you're visiting today, we're especially glad to have you here with us. Welcome. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time now thinking over uh, the part of the Bible we just had read for us. Uh, so let me pray and ask for God's help as we do that. Father, thank you that you speak to us. We pray now that as I speak, you would give me words to say that are true and clear and helpful. And we ask for all of us, Lord, that you would help us to hear your voice. I pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear, open hearts to receive your word. And we pray that it would transform our lives for our good and for your glory. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, I'm sure that most of us will be aware, we're currently in the thick of the footy finals. Don't know how many footy fans are in here. Some of us, the footy finals, this is the best time of the year. Uh, others of us, we're a couple of weeks short of the best time of the year, which is when the footy's over and you don't have to hear about the footy anymore for a while. Uh, the weeks right before the footy finals, the, season, the part of the season we've just come through, uh, is inevitably, inevitably described by footy fans as the pointy end of the season. You ever heard that before? Well, we're in the pointy end of the season now. It's those last couple of weeks before the finals come, those weeks where it really matters, those weeks where everything is riding on the results, where some teams are getting ready for a finals campaign, others are working out, okay, if number three loses to number five by 16 or more points, and then eight draws or better with nine, then we might be able to sneak in as long as we win by 48 or 49 points next week, that kind of stuff, where the results really matter. Of course, for some teams, uh, there's none of that. The season's already well and truly over. Uh, for, for example, the, uh, the West Coast Eagles and the AFL, this year had like a historically, I'll go back to them, we've got to shame them some more. <laughs> they had a historically terrible year this year. They played like a team that did not belong in the AFL. They got thumped, I think, five times by more than 100 points. But I guess there's always next year, right? West Coast Eagles. But there's always next year in the AFL, in the AFL but in the English Premier League, now we'll go on the next one. I don't know if we've got any English Premier League soccer fans here. It's not like that. There is not always next year in the English Premier League. If you finish bottom one, two, or three in the English Premier League, thanks for coming. Don't come back next year. You're out. They don't want you back. You get kicked out of the league. It's called relegation. And relegation is the word that strikes fear, terror, deep into the heart of every English football fan. Because not only is there the shame, you know, of just losing so badly that you don't even get to come back again and try again, right? Uh, not only is there the shame of getting kicked out, but the English Premier League, maybe you know this, it's one of sports kind of richest competitions. Someone did the sums. If you get relegated, if you get kicked out of the English Premier League, your annual income instantaneously, like that day, will take a cut of 100 million pounds at a minimum. The club's income slashed by 100 million pounds, not dollars, pounds at a minimum, uh, which of course makes it very hard to keep all the players who could get you back into that Premier League, right? So often relegation is the start of a long slide into mediocrity. Bad news. Of course, the flip side of relegation, if the bottom three teams of the top league go down, then the top three teams of the next league 
get to go up. We've got a picture of this as well. This is called promotion. And that, for all the, all the horror associated with being relegated, getting promoted, just the reverse. I don't know if anyone's been watching uh, Welcome to Wrexham. Uh, anyone? Forget that I mentioned it then. Don't worry about it. <laughs> getting uh, promoted, going up a league is incredible. You're going from being on the outside looking in into the big leagues, into where all the action is. Uh, this year, uh, this team got promoted, Luton Town. Luton Town, if you're thinking, who, who, who? Yeah, exactly right. Luton Town, who are they? Uh, you know, Manchester City, uh, Manchester United, they're the Red Devils. Uh, Arsenal, they're the Gunners. Luton Town, they're the Hatters. <laughs> you can see their, their frightening hat on, their, on the top of their crest there. But Luton Town are now in the big league, playing with the big boys. They have been promoted. They have gone up. It is a massive, massive deal to the fans of Luton Town that from the outside looking in, finally, they have a seat at the table. Now, as Lachlan said, we're working our way through Matthew's gospel. We're reading Matthew's story of Jesus' life and Matthew's explanation of what it is that's so significant and important about Jesus. And we come to now a crucial week in Jesus' life. Uh, you could say to the pointy end of the season. Uh, one of those points where everything matters. It's a high-stakes moment. Uh, to give you a bit of uh, context for what's going on here, uh, Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem. Okay, He gets to Jerusalem, and for Jesus, this is uh, an away game. right? Jesus is from way up north, way out in the sticks. He's come to the big smoke. He's come to Jerusalem. People do not like Jesus there. Right? He is not on home turf. This is an away game. He gets into a big uh, confrontation. He causes a big stir in the temple. And, uh, and these guys, the religious leaders, uh, they come up to him and they say, Jesus, what are you doing? Who told you? On what authority are you doing these things? Who said you could do it? For Jesus, is up for a fight, right? Jesus says, who said I could? Let me ask you a question. Who said that John the Baptist could do what he was doing? Now, we've got a picture of John the Baptist here as well. John the Baptist uh, is a kind of a figure of the recent past, right? Uh, he's this um, preacher guy, kind of almost like a throwback to Old Testament prophets. Now, John had showed up in Jerusalem, and he had been preaching. He'd been calling the people to repent. And these same religious leaders, when they had heard John preaching, had said, no way, I'm going to listen to that. They refused that John, refused to listen. They didn't accept him. Jesus' point here, right, is that when he turns up and finds the leaders, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, he finds them unreceptive, he finds them hostile. This is part of a classic pattern. God sends his messenger to his people, they won't listen, and then the messenger ends up dead. It happened to the prophets, Jesus said it happened to John, and now he says, watch, it's happening again to me. But this pattern that's been going on for centuries is not going to go on anymore. It's hit a crisis. It's hit a tipping point. And that's why Jesus tells these three stories that Jess read for us, these three parables, three very pointed stories that together are a, 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 a package. They, they each have these threads running through them. Each story has a, a disrespectful refusal. Each story has a well-deserved relegation. And each story has a surprising promotion. 
And together they make a package, a pointed package, and the point of the package is this. When Israel follows its leaders in rejecting Jesus, they are relegated and a new people are promoted to become the people of God. Now, if you want to follow along with what we're saying here, you can take the little outline that you got on the way in, and inside that, uh, there's an outline. I've tried to make it super clear and easy to follow. Uh, I've written down all the main points on there, so easy to grasp. Um, there's a typo on the top. My bad. Sorry about that. Now, we're going to do this kind of in two halves here. We're going to look at these three stories that Jesus told, and then we're going to uh, finish up by trying to think a bit about, okay, well, what does this stuff mean? For us, okay, what's it saying about God? So, first up, three stories of refusal, relegation, and promotion. So, we heard these three stories, these three parables that Jesus tells in these chapters, and they each have these common threads running through them. We're going to look at these each in turn. First thread we're going to look at is this thread of refusal that runs through these stories. All right, the first story, there's this parable about two sons and a dad who's got a vineyard. He wants them to go work in the vineyard. The father says to one of the sons, hey, can you go work in my vineyard? Yeah, sure, dad, no worries. He doesn't go. Uh, instead, you know, he puts in an eight-hour shift in his Stardew Valley farm, never makes it outside to dad's farm to do any work there. Second story uh, it's a little bit like the, uh, the ancient Near Eastern version, I think, of A Current Affair. Surely, this is a classic story, uh, A Current Affair, tenants from hell. <laughs> I think A Current Affair, I think they must have run this twice a year for the last 30 years, this story. Tenants from hell! You know, this guy turns up and rents the place and he won't pay the rent and he's wrecking everything and he won't leave. Uh, it's a little bit like that, right? The ancient Near Eastern version. Uh, the idea is that these tenants are supposed to work in the vineyard uh, for a share of the produce. That's how they're going to pay their rent, right? They'll produce this much, they give this much to the owner, they keep this much for themselves. But when he sends his servants to collect the rent, uh, they put them off. No way, we're not going to pay the rent. He sends more servants, they get violent with them, they even kill them. Ultimately, he sends his son to them saying, guys, be reasonable, come on. And even the son is killed. Now, both of these stories are not just about why you should always listen to your dad or uh, pay your rent or something like that. Uh, in both of them, Jesus uses this same image, doesn't he? The image of the vineyard. And if we know our Old Testaments well, particularly places like Isaiah chapter 5, you can look at that later if you want, um, this is a classic image for God's people. The vineyard is like a classic image of God's people, Israel a way of talking about the relationship between God and his people, Israel. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. The points that Jesus is trying to make in these stories are points about Israel and its leadership. And you see that as he explains the stories. Have a look at verse 32. He explains that first story. He says to the religious leaders that he's talking to, uh, he says to them, John the Baptist came to show you the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. He's making a point with this story about them, about these religious leaders in Israel. He also explains that second story about the tenants in the vineyard. Now, this explanation is a little bit more complicated, right? In, in verse 42, he, starts, he uses one image to explain another image, right? He starts talking about a special stone in a building, a cornerstone. So it's a little bit complicated, but the leaders, the people he's talking to, they get it, right? They understand crystal clear what Jesus is on about. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew 
he was talking about them. Talking about them rejecting him, which is exactly what they do. Verse 46, so they look for a way to arrest him. Right? They cast themselves in the story in the role of these tenets who, who refuse. When the leaders reject Jesus, Jesus is pointing out this fits into a pattern, a pattern of refusing Israel, refusing to listen to God's messengers, violently opposing them, disrespecting and opposing God himself. It happened to the prophets. It happened to John the Baptist. And now the same thing is happening to Jesus. In fact, that pattern is coming to a climax. When Israel's leaders reject Jesus, it is the climax of a pattern of refusing to listen to God. Which is why these stories speak about consequences as well. This is why there's this thread of relegation running through these stories. In the first story, Jesus asks, you know, which of the two sons did what his father wanted? Uh, and the second son is exposed, right? The son who says, sure, dad, I'll help you, uh, and then doesn't. His apparent obedience is exposed as a mask for actual disobedience. Jesus says that the religious leaders who make such a song and dance about, oh, we're the ones who obey God, they love to be seen, to be religious. He's saying, well, that's just a mask, that stuff. That apparent compliance with God is a mask for actual disobedience, resistance to God. They are missing out on God's kingdom, missing out on God's salvation. Jesus also asks them in the second story, the one about the vineyard and the tenants, he says to them uh, in verse 40, okay, so when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And his hearers say, well, you know, obviously he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. This is outrageous behavior on the part of these tenants from hell. You know, they say, here comes the son, let's kill him and get his inheritance. Now, are they going to get the inheritance? No, they're going to get destroyed. In the last story, for those who reject the king's invitation and kill the king's servants when he invites them to his wedding feast, the reaction is even more severe. If you look at chapter 22 and verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. This thread of relegation violent relegation running through all these stories and jesus kind of ties it together in the key verse verse 43 that's where he explains what he's talking about here verse 43 therefore i tell you that the kingdom of god will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit the kingdom of god will be taken away from you jesus is saying that when the leaders reject him and when the rest of Israel follows its leaders in rejecting Jesus, they're going to hit a tipping point. There's going to be severe consequences. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. The parables teach us to see God as extraordinarily patient in the face of persistent refusal and disrespect, even violent opposition, so patient that he would even send his own son as a kind of a final entreaty. Please, please be reasonable. Stop this. But when the son is rejected and murdered, the tipping point has been reached. The people who've done it are going to be relegated. 
When Israel follows its leaders in rejecting Jesus, the nation of Israel will no longer be the people of God. When Israel follows its leaders in rejecting Jesus, Israel comes to an end as God's people. The threat of refusal ties into the threat of relegation. But these are not the only threads in these stories, are there? I'm sure you noticed as you listen, there's also this thread running through every story of unexpected promotions. People on the outs finding themselves unexpectedly on the inside. In the first story, there's the son who's the, the bad kid, the naughty kid. No, dad, that kid. Well, he's the one because he changes his mind and begins to actually obey. Well, this is the one who truly does the father's will. In the second story, there's talk about other tenants who will get to come and have this vineyard, live in it. In the third story, uh, when the invited guests refuse the king's invitation, that's not the end of the story, is it? Verse 8, chapter 22, verse 8, the king said to his servants, the wedding banquet's ready, but those I invited didn't deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Even as the nation of Israel is relegated, others are promoted. Now, who is it who's getting promoted? Well, in the first story, it's pretty clear. Look at chapter 21 and verse 31. Jesus says, uh, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God. The, the flagrant, obvious sinners, the kind of people that everyone would look at and say, well, obviously they're bad. Obviously they're on the outs with God. God doesn't want to know about them. Jesus says, no, they are coming into the kingdom of God as they hear the message preached to them, as they repent, as they turn their lives around. They are coming in to God's kingdom as they turn back to God. The flagrant, obvious sinners, they heard the message, they repented, they believed, and they are now entering God's kingdom. In the second story, in, in verse 43, there's talk about the kingdom of God being taken away from Israel and then given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, who are those people? Uh, is Jesus saying, okay, the, the Jews are out, now the non-Jews, the Gentiles are in. Jews out, Gentiles in. No, he's not saying that. It's not as simple as that. For starters, uh, Jesus hasn't used the word you would use to describe that concept, but also it just wouldn't fit, right? Because in verse 31, Jesus has just been talking about a bunch of Jewish tax collectors, Jewish prostitutes coming into the kingdom of God. So who is this nation then who receives the kingdom? Well, the third story helps out a little bit. Who gets to enjoy the king's feast in the third story? Verse 9, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Who gets to come in and enjoy the king's banquet? Anyone. Anyone you find. Not just one particular group, but anyone. Not just the, the morally spotless. Not just the relig religiously observant. 
No, the kingdom of God is open to anyone and everyone. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. The wedding hall was filled with guests. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is open to anyone and everyone, to you and me. And not because we've worked our way up, not because we've got our spiritual performance up to kind of top league level, we've, we've turned ourselves around. No. No, not because we've clawed our way up the rankings, but because God has made us an offer that we don't deserve. Because God has decided to make room on the inside for people who belong on the outside, people like you, people like me. The blessing of being God's people is now offered to anyone and everyone. So these are the three stories that Jesus tells. We want to finish up here by taking a moment to think on, well, what is Jesus saying, right? What are these stories that Jesus is telling? What's he saying about God and God's plan and God's people? What do we understand Jesus to be saying to us in these stories? And it's important for us to be quite careful and clear here, and it'll become obvious why. The first thing we want to say, right, is that Israel retains its place in God's purposes. Israelites remain part of God's people. Now, if you've read your Bible, if you've read your Old Testament, uh, you will know that Israel, the descendants of Abraham, these are the people that God chose to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth, to bring back blessing to the broken creation. But all those plans and hopes are not abandoned when Jesus comes. It's not like when Jesus turns up, you think, oh, we don't need that Israel stuff. Let's tear out our Old Testament and throw it away. No, the exact opposite of that, right? All those plans, all those hopes and dreams, that's not abandoned when Jesus comes. That's fulfilled when Jesus comes. Jesus is the true Israel. All those hopes and plans and promises of God are are wrapped up and realized in one man, the man that Matthew first introduces as the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus, Israel's Messiah, the descendant of David, the descendant of Abraham, Jesus the Jew, he's the cornerstone of everything that God will build. And that means because Jesus is Israel's Messiah, because he's the true Israel, it means that when God builds on Jesus, Israel is built into God's plans permanently. He's the cornerstone. So when the official leadership structures of Israel, when they reject Jesus, when they reject the cornerstone, uh, Israel comes to an end, but it's not a dead end. It's not a dead end. It's more like its present form is dissolved and it's reconstituted around Jesus. Uh, More like it's, it's demolished and then rebuilt on Jesus as a cornerstone. Israel has a future, and its future is as the people gathered around Jesus in faith. The future won't be like the past. You know, the renewed Israel, it won't be a single ethnic group marked out by obedience to the Torah and the traditions. The new people, the church of Jesus Christ, is going to be made up of both Jews and Gentiles together. And this is really important, right? It's not the case that in God's plans, 
Now we've got Jesus. It's Jews out, Gentiles in. That's not how it works. Remember the tax collectors and the prostitutes who are first into the kingdom. They're all Israelites. Israelites remain a part of God's new people. And that's why when Paul is uh, writing about this stuff in his letters, he asks, did God reject his people? By no means, no way. Now, if you're thinking, this seems kind of abstract. Why are we talking about this for? It matters because Christian anti-Semitism is an oxymoron and because God is faithful. Now, we need to just be honest uh, and realistic here. We need to admit there is a long and tragic history of Christian anti-Semitism. That is hostility on the part of Christian people, uh, prejudice and hostility towards Jewish people. There's a long and ugly tradition of this, uh, culminating in what Jews call the Shoah, is better known to us as the Holocaust. Now, that kind of anti-Semitism, that's fueled by good old-fashioned xenophobia, fear and hatred of the other. But it's also amplified, it has been amplified by wrong ideas about passages just like this one. Wrong ideas about passages like the ones we're going to read in the next couple of weeks. Now, we can't make the mistake of thinking that Israel is a dead end or that Gentiles, non-Jews, have replaced Jews as God's people. You think through the logic, right? If Israel is a dead end, if they've been replaced by Gentiles in God's plans, then the Jews belong on the scrap heap of history. There are people with no future. It becomes much easier to rationalize harassing them, expelling them, looking for a final solution to the problem of their continued existence. And historically, that's what Christian anti-Semitism has done. Now, friends, we don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole, right? For all of the obvious reasons, all the obvious reasons, we don't want to go anywhere near that. But I want to suggest there are also some less obvious reasons that we don't want to go near that. Theological reasons, reasons that have to do with who God is and who we are as God's people. I've said there is such a thing as Christian anti-Semitism. I want to say equally loud and clear, there is no such thing as Christian anti-Semitism. That is an oxymoron. The person who is being anti-Semitic has forgotten what it means to be called Christian. They've forgotten what Christian means. To be a Christian means to follow the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, to worship a Jewish man as God. Perhaps even worse, Christian anti-Semitism, it tells a lie about God. It tells a lie about God, that God is done with the Jews, that God doesn't keep his promises, that God makes a promise, but sometimes it fails because people are too hard-hearted or too stubborn or too evil or whatever. And sometimes God runs out of patience, runs out of puff. He gives up on his people. He gives up on his chosen ones. Friends, that is a lie. God is not like that. God does not give up on his people. This really matters, right? Because we need to know, we need to know that if I'm one of God's people, he is not going to give up on me. He's not going to run out of patience with me. He's not going to throw his hands up in the face of my kind of persistent evil and hard-heartedness and just come up with plan B or plan C or plan D. He's not going to do that. God was faithful to Israel, and God is faithful to you and me. He does not give up on his people. 
The last thing that's important for us to understand, that Jesus wants for us to understand as we read these stories, is that God's new people can't make the same old mistakes. The, uh, the final story has a little epilogue. I'm sure you noticed that the final story's got a little bit that doesn't match any bit in the other stories. The wedding hall is filled with guests, good and bad, but then chapter 22, verse 11, but then when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. I don't know if you've ever had the uh, experience of going somewhere and being badly underdressed. See if you can spot the fellow who uh, did not nail the dress code for a meeting with the President of the United States of America. He thought maybe he was going to go shopping at Target or something and... Uh, yeah, did not nail it. Here's, uh, here's another one for you, this young lad at his own wedding. <laughs> Come along a little underdressed. We've had a couple of weddings the last couple of weeks. Pleased to, uh, pleased to report that the boys acquitted themselves much better than this. Uh, she doesn't look best pleased, I would suggest. She doesn't look like she's loving this situation. Uh, you need to dress for the occasion, don't you? Uh, it's just about really respect for the occasion and respect for the people who are involved in it. That's why you dress appropriately. In this third story, when the man comes not dressed to the wedding, the king's wedding feast, not dressed in wedding clothes, he's showing the king the same kind of disrespect as those who refused the king's invitation in the first place. And in a stark and scary way, he finds himself off, uh, no better off than those first guests who refused. Now, Jesus is speaking here in telling this little coda to the story. Jesus is speaking to second-round invites. He's speaking to people like you and me, all right? people who don't make the cut for the first round. We're in on the second round, the anyone, bad and good. But what's he saying to us? Is he saying you can get into the kingdom by grace, but you have to stay in there by doing good works? No, he's not saying that. Is he saying, well, if you accept God's invitation, but you're not really one of the chosen ones, God's going to find out and throw you out? No, he's not saying that. What he's saying with this little coda to the last story, what he's saying is that our conduct has to match our calling. Our conduct has to match our calling. What kind of calling have you got? We belong on the outside looking in, right? We are, we're the Luton town of the kingdom of heaven. We don't belong there. We have no claim to be there. But out of nowhere, out of God's sheer generosity, we have been called into the king's feast, called to partake of his riches, called to share in his delight in his beloved son. Ancient Israel had a high calling, but so many of them became complacent. They became a contradiction. They, they claimed to live God's way, but didn't actually do it. They claimed to be the people of God, but refused to listen to God. Friends, as God's new people, we can't make that same old mistake. 
God's new people must not repeat the same old mistakes. It's easy to think, you know, I'm a Christian, I go to church. No, so many other people, they don't go to church, they reject Christianity altogether. Of course, I'm one of God's people, I'm one of God's chosen ones, of course he's pleased with me. It's easy to get a little bit complacent, you know, think that what really matters is our correct affiliation rather than a, a genuine living faith in God as our Father. Friends, we can't, we can't think like that. I wonder if it's uh, particularly easy for us to fall into thinking this way um, if we have grown up in a church-going family, grown up in a Christian family. I think it's really easy for people in that situation to, uh, you know, we have to say there's lots and lots of blessings, lots of wonderful things that come with being born into a Christian family. One of the potential troubles is, is thinking that being a part of God's kingdom means being born into a certain tribe, keeping up certain traditions like going to church on Sundays. And of course, that's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is about receiving Christ as the cornerstone, about repenting of sin, trusting for him, him for forgiveness, about love for God and for others. Now, Coming into God's kingdom is, is, of course, completely unconditional. But being a part of God's kingdom conditions everything about us in every way. Who's the true son? Well, the one who does his father's will. Who are the new people? They're the ones who bear the fruit of the kingdom. Who gets to enjoy the son's wedding banquet? Well, the ones who appreciate what it means to be called in out of the cold by the king himself and who conduct themselves accordingly. Who dress like they've just received the invitation of their lives. Who get that they've been honoured beyond belief. They've been given something they could never earn. And who respond with repentance and faith that, that overflows in love and thankfulness. Friends, let's be those people the people that God has called us to be. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we are staggered by your grace. We know that we have no claim in ourselves to be in your kingdom, to enjoy your delight in your Son. We belong on the outside looking in because of the ways that we have refused you. And yet you are so kind to send your son to call us into your kingdom, to turn us back to you. We're staggered by your grace and we're sobered by the experience of your people Israel. God, we do not want to fall into complacency we do not want to fall into hypocrisy. We pray you'd guard it from us, guard us from it. We pray instead, God, that you would give us a deep and living sense of your gracious goodness to us, the high calling that we've heard. And Father, we pray that that would just well up in a genuine love and joy and thankfulness in our lives and spill out into everything that we are and do. And we pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen.